Awesome. Thank you, Baxters. Uh, what a privilege to hear from uh, two different uh, just missionaries and uh, opportunities that our church is connected with here this morning. Well, my apologies that uh, I am under the weather, so I'll try not to cough into this microphone, but uh, really no promises here this morning. So um, it won't bother me. It'll probably just more bother you if I start hacking into it. So we'll, we'll try to, you, you can be praying that that won't happen. There's uh, no coughing fits. But all right, hey, before we dive into the scriptures too, um, I announced a couple of weeks ago that we would love to hear from one of you. I think one of the things that Dale and I have talked about and we want to see more of in our Sunday morning services are testimonies of our congregation about how God has worked in their lives. And we believe that God's Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God uses His Word in our lives. And I've asked that we as a church would be reading through the Sermon on the Mount once a week as we go through this series. And so I hope and pray that God has been teaching you and showing you and perhaps correcting you, rebuking you, encouraging you perhaps, as you've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And we would love to, as a church to hear what God has done in your life, what He has shown you in your life, or what needs to change, or something along those lines, uh, from His Word in the Sermon on the Mount uh, over the past couple of weeks. So if He's done something... Uh, talk, reach out to me. Talk to me. Let me know what it is, and we'd love to see if we can get you scheduled up here. So just wanted to announce that again. We would love to hear from you. But if you'll stand with me as we read the Word together this morning. We're back in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, going through 26. <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that, who, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Father, help us to hear from you this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And please, Father, give me an extra measure of energy and strength and clarity of speech. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, church, no one likes a hypocrite. That's not a controversial statement. But we are fascinated with hypocrites. All you have to do is kind of Google famous hypocrites and all sorts of lists of the top 10 celebrity hypocrites will come out. I mean, Watch Mojo even has a video devoted to the top 10 celebrity hypocrites. If you don't know what Watch Mojo is, it's a YouTube channel that will suck you in with meaningless top 10 lists. You'll start watching one, and the next thing you know, it's five hours later, and you're like, what have I done with my life? Absolutely nothing. But uh, so don't go watching Watch Mojo because it is addictive. But we're obsessed with hypocrisy. Well, what causes hypocrisy? What's, what's kind of its, its source? Well, picture yourself as having three primary body parts, your heart, your mouth, and your hands. Think of yourself in that way. And hypocrisy happens when your internal values or your heart doesn't line up with your external speech or your mouth. But also, our hands are connected to our heart. And so what happens is, is our hands start doing what our heart really believes, and that then doesn't line up with our speech. And the next thing you know, we are hypocrites. We're caught in hypocrisy. Well, if we're honest, we're all hypocrites to one degree or another. Nobody in this room is able to escape that charge of not being, or of, of being a hypocrite. So do we just throw up our hands and say, well, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm never not going to be a hypocrite, so why bother? God's grace covers me. Praise be to God that he loves me even though I am a hypocrite. One of the defining characteristics of a Christian is the willingness to say, I'm a hypocrite. I don't actually practice everything that I preach. But does God call us to just stay there? No, he calls us to grow, to become something different. As God's children and as members of God's kingdom, of his family, we are called to grow and to become someone different. Well, we're in this series, Greater Righteousness. That's what we're titling our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, kind of seeing some big themes that Jesus is going to be teasing out and now we're moving into the big teaching block of the Sermon on the Mount. The big teaching block runs from uh, 5.17 all the way to 7.12, and it's divided into three big sections, so we're going to be tackling the first big section uh, this week and over the next two weeks. And in these teaching blocks, Jesus is laying out a new way for us to walk through the world, specifically a way that is whole, a way that isn't full of hypocrisy. It's a way of Jesus himself, a way that Jesus is whole, a way that's unhypocritical. So that's where we're going today. We're looking at kind of this first idea of, of uh, hatred and anger and murder. What a great place to start. You know, Jesus kind of launches right in with like a big number one thing, you know. If you ask anybody, you know, how are you doing in life? Are you a bad person? Well, I haven't killed anybody. At least most people can say that. And Jesus kind of launches right in. That's the first thing he goes after. 
is that number one standard that we have of, well, I haven't killed anybody, and he demolishes it. He demolishes it. Okay, but let's rewind a little bit. We're going to start in uh, chapter 5, verse 17. And I actually read this a few weeks ago when I was giving you the introduction to what the sermon was all about. And in these verses, 17 to 20 in particular, we kind of get a miniature introduction to the rest of what is going to happen in the teaching block of the sermon. Jesus basically says three things in this little introduction. The first thing, and again, I mentioned a lot of this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to go into a little bit more detail today. But the first thing he talks about is that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for all of the Old Testament scriptures, the covenant promises of the first five books of the Pentateuch and then the prophets, everything that follows that, the interpretation, the history of Israel. So it's shorthand of the Old Testament. He's like, I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. And fulfill, in this context, doesn't mean that he came to do all of it on our behalf. He definitely did do that. He did the law on our behalf. But that's not the way that Matthew is using fulfillment. Instead, I said this again a few weeks ago, that that he came to fulfill it in the sense that he's showing that all of the law and the prophets point to him. They are about him. They find their fullest meaning and purpose in him. Jesus is what the law and prophets are all about. So he came to fulfill them in that sense, to show us what God is saying. The second thing that he says is he kind of goes into this discussion. He warns like, hey, don't relax what I have to say. Because perhaps when we look at Jesus and how he was so gracious, and he hung out with prostitutes and sinners... It's like, Jesus, are you, you know, relaxing the law? Are you trying to say that the standards that Moses gave us aren't good enough or are too stringent? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I didn't come to relax the law or to make it less of what we would say it is. But he's saying that relaxing the law isn't the way of the kingdom. Relaxing the law isn't the way of the kingdom. You see, we have a danger, particularly within uh, Protestantism, is we pit law and grace against one another. As if somehow God gave the law and that he was disappointed in the law, that the law wasn't good. But that's not actually true. Grace and the law aren't in opposition to one another. What's in opposition to one another is that we try to use the law to get God's favor. We have God's favor because of grace, this undeserved gift that he gives us. But we try to use the law as a means to get God's favor. And that is what is in opposition. It's grace and this trying to earn God's favor. Those are in opposition. It's not grace and the law. It's grace and a misuse of the law. You see, when we receive grace, when we believe in Christ, what happens is is the law now becomes something that we seek to live out. It's something we try to do because we have become new men, new women, new people. And the law of God is placed on our hearts and we want to do the law. Not in a way to please God in order to kind of get some sort of favor from Him, but in an understanding that this is good. And yes, it does please God, but I already have His pleasure. And so as a grateful son or daughter, I now live out the law. Okay, so Jesus is not anti-law. 
He's not relaxing the law. He wants us to teach the law and to show that it's good. Now we get to understand the depth of the law. We get to see Jesus interpreting the law for us. Because we have a tendency to misuse the law. These things that God tells us to do. Okay, so Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to relax the law. But he says something very particular in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This statement here, 520, is kind of the thesis statement for the entire Sermon on the Mount. You know, think back to English class, and you know you have to write your thesis statements for your paper. It's supposed to be like the last sentence of your introductory paragraph. It's like, well, well, here you go, last sentence of your introductory paragraph. Good job, Jesus, you're following 21st century writing, Western writing conventions. I'm just kidding about that. But this really is kind of what the sermon is all about, because the rest of the sermon shows us what this exceeding righteousness is like. Now, this is a pretty strong statement. You have to have a righteousness that succeeds the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, the scribes and Pharisees, they were the super spiritual people, all right? They were the people that you looked at them, you're like, oh, that's the Bible study leader. That's the elder. That's the deacon. That's the nursery worker. That's the person who volunteers at church all the time. That's the person who tithes. That's the person who's connected to all the missionaries. That's the missionary on the field. That's the pastor. You would look at the scribes and Pharisees and say, those are the spiritual people. And Jesus says, you have to have a righteousness more than them. It's like, oh, okay, Jesus, well, um, I don't know if I can do that. Not like that, Jesus. Those are as good as you can get. Not only that, this word exceed, exceed is kind of a weak sense of it. It's more like something crazy surpassing the scribes and the Pharisees. Not just exceeding as if you can exceed it in like, oh, you got to have a few points higher. It's like, no, on an entirely different level. You know, that's amateur level. we got to be in the pros. Maybe the Hall of Fame is what Jesus is saying. But ultimately, I don't think he's talking about something quantitatively different. I think he's talking about a righteousness that must be qualitatively different. A righteousness that is entirely different from the righteousness that the Pharisees had. And why do I say that? Because right after this, Jesus gives us six clear examples of what he's talking about. Six clear examples of an exceeding righteousness. And all of those six examples deal with the heart. Jesus isn't concerned, well, he is concerned, but Jesus is not focusing upon the external behavior, that speech that we have. He's saying, what's going on in your heart? That's what he gets in the six examples. And those six examples are summed up in verse 48, chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago as well. And this word perfect, when we look back on everything that Jesus says in the previous six examples, so between 520 and 548, we get the six examples. Jesus is not talking about this moral perfection in the sense of, I do everything right. It's not, it's, it's not not that, but it's something greater. It's the idea of wholeness and completion. You see, God doesn't do anything externally that doesn't align with who he is internally. 
God doesn't have a reluctant sense of love towards people. He's not like, well, I guess I ought to love these people. He's like, no, this is who I am. I love these people from the depth of my heart. And so Jesus says, you need to be like God, whole and complete, not being divided where your mouth says one thing, but your heart's really going in a completely different direction. The word here is teleos, again, a whole complete or a wholehearted orientation toward God. And that's not what the Pharisees were promoting. The scribes and Pharisees were all about the external, the outside of the cup. This is why Jesus is like, well, you do a great job of cleaning the outside of the cup, but what about the inside? It's the same idea that Jesus is talking about right here. He's saying that following the law is an inside-out deal. We don't just conform our external behavior. He says this is the type of righteousness that we actually need, something that springs up from the inside. Now, there seem to be a lot of threats that go along with this. It's like, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven without this kind of righteousness. It's like, oh, okay, Jesus, that's, um, that's pretty harsh. What am I supposed to do with that? Even in verse 26, we saw, saw this a, a bit while we were reading. He says, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And he's talking about being in hell. And it's like, oh my goodness, Jesus, these are threats. Like, so how do we kind of square this? Is he saying that this kind of righteousness is what gets you into heaven? And no, I, I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I think he's making descriptive statements. I heard this illustration from John Piper uh, once, and it stuck with me for years. And the idea is, is when we sit for an exam and we take our exam, yes, the exam is supposed to reveal what we really know, but we also know that by taking the exam, I'm earning my degree. Like, I get a passing grade on the exam, and that earns me that wonderful piece of paper, the, the diploma. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not like saying, you do this righteousness in order to get the kingdom of heaven. Instead, John Piper said it's like this. It's a medical chart. Imagine you're in a hospital bed and the doctor comes in and pulls out your medical chart and says, okay, what do we have here? Oh, a clean bill of health. You're free to go. The medical chart is describing who you are. It's not earning you anything. And so for us, at one point we will stand before heaven and this type of righteousness is what needs to be found. Not that it earns us entrance, but it marks us as one who belongs to the kingdom. Something has happened inside of our heart when we have been transformed by Jesus. Something wells up inside of us and we begin to live out a life that actually looks like Christ. That's what happens. So it's, it's a medical chart, not an exam that we take. So these are descriptions of what people in the kingdom are like. They're not entrance requirements. But here's the beauty of it. I love this. Through these descriptions of what the, this exceeding righteousness is like, Jesus is inviting us to have this. He's correcting us. He's nudging us in the direction. He's conforming us more and more to His image. I love it, that God works through his warnings and his pictures. Through his word, God forms his people. Amen, that is a good thing. All right, so here's our first main point for today. Those in the kingdom have a greater righteousness, a righteousness that comes from the heart. Those in the kingdom have a greater righteousness, 
a righteousness that comes from the heart. That's why we're calling this series Greater Righteousness, because it's all about the heart. What is coming out of my heart? And again, that what comes out of my heart is not what gets my favor with the Lord, but it marks me as one who has God's favor, okay? All right, so starting today and for the next three weeks, we're going to spend uh, time looking at these three examples, or six examples, excuse me, three weeks looking at six examples. So today is the idea of murder. So starting in verse 21, he jumps in. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. There's a pattern in the six examples that Jesus uses. He starts with, you have heard that it was said, and then he generally references something in the Old Testament. Uh, Sometimes there's a few things added because people were adding things to it. But he starts with this. He starts with the Old Testament command, and then he moves to, in verse 22, but I say to you. Now, Jesus is clearly not abolishing what was said before. Jesus doesn't get rid of don't murder. Okay, that's still in effect. Please, please don't be murdering, all right? But so what's he doing? He's interpreting. He's saying, let me give you the full picture of this. Let me show you how to not just not murder on the outside, but to have a whole person heart that seeks to not murder. Because it's not enough just to refrain from stabbing people. Instead, your heart needs to be seeking something good for them. All right, so, he's, so he starts with, you've heard it was said, but I say to you, and then he moves on to a particular application of that principle. So we get that today. You have the first part, you've heard that it was said, the second part, but I say to you, and then in the next, well, we'll see it in a bit, starting in verse 23, he kind of says, and this is what it looks like. Here's our application. So today, you can call me lazy, but I'm going to go through this as well. Our application is basically going to be the application that Jesus gives us. All right, so Jesus, he's moving the attention away from the external act of murder and moving to what's going on in our heart, the true issues And he's really talking about hating someone. He uses this language of anger and these insults, calling people you fool. So it's the idea that that me in my heart, I am, am, it's not just like, oh, I'm I'm angry at you or I'm disappointed in you. It's like there's an active, I hate you type thing. Picture Anakin Skywalker, I hate you, you know, that that type of thing. Some of you think that's funny. Um, All right, when I am having hate in my heart, I am viewing somebody who is made in the image of God in a way they ought not be viewed. Because when I hate, I'm saying that life would be better if you weren't here. I wish you were gone. That is murder. That's why Jesus links these two things. He links them. Now, we have a tendency to view the law like a fence. As long as I don't go over the fence, I'm okay just want to stay within its bounds. I mean, any ask, you know, I've sat on a, a number of dating panels, and I'll be doing one with the youth here again and, uh, this coming week. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked the question, how far is too far? You know, I don't want to get too far in this physical, or go too far physically. And I'm like, that's the wrong question. If you're asking that question, you've already gone too far. Because you're showing that your heart is saying, how close to the electric fence can I get before I get zapped? When in reality, Jesus says, your heart should be seeking righteousness. Your heart should be seeking what God wants. And if you're saying, how much can I get until I get in trouble? Well, that's not what God desires. So it's not how close can I get to the line, but instead, how do I have a heart that pursues God? 
So that's what I tell people when they're in relationships. Yes, there are boundaries and fences, physical things you shouldn't pass in relationships. But at the same time, God is most concerned with your heart. So it's not good enough just to not cross the line. Instead, I need to run towards Christ, not creep up to the edge. What is the orientation of your heart? Because the truth is, we also like to hide what is in our heart. Okay? I mean, you guys know there's, there's the Midwest nice. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not blatantly mean to people and, and rude. You know, I'm from the South. There's kind of that same thing, that Southern hospitality. Well, Rox and I, a few years back, this was before the kids were born, we had the, the privilege of spending uh, a living for a summer in New Jersey. And uh, that's a different place. There's no Midwest nice in New Jersey. I remember walking into a shop or a restaurant or somewhere, and the guy just looks at me. Yeah, what do you want? Oh, that kind of felt like off-putting to me because he was just, yeah, what do you want? Like He clearly did not really care that I was there. But at the same time, there's something refreshing about that honesty. It's like, oh, okay, I know exactly where you stand with me. <laughs> but sometimes, like, in our, our Midwest nice, in our super friendly culture, we'll put on that smile, but we're glaring in our hearts. And we'll do that with the people that we hate. We hide what's in our hearts and we prove ourselves to be hypocrites. I want you to ask yourself this question. What if the people around me were able to hear my thoughts? We all think, oh, that would be a cool superpower to be able to hear people's thoughts. Uh-uh, you do not want that. I mean, that would drive you to a suicide in about a day. You'd be like, oh my goodness, everybody feels this way. That's just, we, we are wicked people in our hearts. But I also want to flip this. Imagine you could hear the thoughts of Jesus. What would overflow and come out of him? You know what? It'd be the exact same thing that he says. Because Jesus is whole. His heart lines up with his speech and his hands. His heart, his mouth, and his hands are all doing the same thing. They're acting in concert with one another because God is that way. Be perfect as God is perfect. Be whole as God is whole. Jesus loves us wholly and fully without an ounce of reluctance. And that is a tremendous blessing to us. It's what we need. Here's our second point for today. Whole person righteousness. There's that word again, righteousness. Avoids hate externally and internally. Whole person righteousness avoids hate externally and internally internally. Now, I hope that nothing, this shouldn't be like earth-shattering to us, because especially if you've grown up in the church, we know that the heart matters. But here's the deal. We need to be taught this until the day we die, because we resist it. We want the outside to be okay, and then say, as long as I'm okay out here, as long as nobody can see it or experiences it, I'm good. But God says no, internally and externally. We need to be whole. We need to be whole. Now, I want to reiterate again. I cannot reiterate this enough this morning, that this heart orientation, this wholeness, does not earn us favor with God. This is not how we become Christians. This is not how we are saved. But instead, these things reveal a heart that has been changed by God. You see, we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our rebellion against God. We surrender to Him. We acknowledge that Christ died on the cross for our sins. 
We believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins, placing our faith, our full trust in His work. And God says, then you are my child. So it's not something we do. We believe, and that's what makes us Christians. It's our belief. And God says that He gives us a new heart when we do that. Hebrews tells us that in the new covenant, in the the season we are in now, that God writes His law on our hearts. And so now we have God's law written here in us, and it springs up and comes out in our speech and in our actions. Not perfectly always, we're still beset with sin, but over time, our heart and our mouth should align more and more together. And God shows us deeper and deeper down into our hearts so that we're always able to become more and more aligned with Him. He doesn't just, we don't get to a certain point in our life where we're like, okay, there's no more sin. Instead, God just keeps revealing it to us and we keep becoming more and more aligned and then God will reveal more and more sin to us and then we become more and more aligned. And that process goes on and on. It's called sanctification. Sanctification. How do we grow as, when, when I think about having a, a heart that aligns with my, with my mouth? I think the best way to grow is to see God's disposition toward you. See how he feels about you. Because when I see how God has fully loved me, then I can't really harbor that bitterness and hate towards others. It doesn't make any sense. I have to move towards them in love. I have to move towards them in love. All right, we've got to keep moving. Jesus moves into some application. He's like, okay, so if you're going to have an internal righteousness that matches your external righteousness, let me give you an example of that crowd. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. And he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then, you know, your brother has something against you, leave it and go. Go reconcile. This command is a pretty absurd command, all right? Because this altar, where's this altar that he's talking about? It's in Jerusalem. Who is Jesus talking to? People in Galilee. That's a several days journey away. And he's saying, leave your offering on the altar, which is a live animal. Leave it there. Go back to where you were. Reconcile with your brother And then you can come back to the altar and continue with your gift. It's like, okay, Jesus, hold on a second. That's that's ridiculous. But that's the seriousness with which Jesus is saying, you need to have your internals line up with your externals. And we're going to see some more serious commands as we go on. You know, that's where we get the cut off your hand, take out your eye. He's, He's taking things seriously, saying this is a big deal. It's a big deal. Let your internal life match your external religious life. You know, don't just do the spiritual activities, but be at peace with one another. All right, let's read our our third main point. Avoiding internal hate requires active pursuit of reconciliation, because I think that's this example that Jesus is giving. Avoiding internal hate requires active pursuit of reconciliation. So when I think about not having this internal hate, it's not a just, oh, I got to avoid it but there's actually something I need to move towards. Now, here's what's really unique about what what Jesus does here. When I think about how I'm inclined to hate someone, 
And if I, were to, if I were to be Jesus and say, Jesus, speak this into my life. Tell me how I need to change. I would assume that Jesus would say to me, Mark, you need to have a forgiving spirit because you're obviously upset with what somebody has done against you and you're hating them. You need to be more forgiving. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you need to seek reconciliation. You need to go to them. You need to make things right. You are the one who has to deal with things. Not, you need to be forgiving. That comes later on in the sermon. But you need to confess your own garbage. You need to own what you have done. That's where he puts the burden on us. Now, I want to give us a caution. Jesus is not saying endure abuse. Okay, Jesus is not saying that you're supposed to own things that aren't yours and just put up with whatever. It's not saying be a doormat. This, the Sermon on the Mount fits under wisdom literature. And like the Proverbs, you don't just take the, something a proverb says and just blanket apply it to everything. After all, in the Proverbs it says, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't, and also it says right after that, or maybe it's the other way around, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which one is it? And the point is you have to use wisdom knowing when to apply this. Sermon on the Mount is the same way. So I can't take this as a blanket statement of, okay, in every situation, I can't ever speak into something wrong going into somebody's life or something wrong that's, that's going on, and I just need to be a doormat. That's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying, what is your general posture? Are you one who seeks reconciliation? Okay, you catch the difference there? So we're not looking to uh, condone or... Uh, uh, or endure abuse. I think it's also interesting to use God as an example because God did not wait for us to come to him to reconcile us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't need to own anything on his part, but instead he reached towards us to reconcile us. What a great picture of what God desires from us. Now, in the concluding verses of his example, come to terms quickly with your accuser. You know, settle with him. Do, uh, he, as he's expanding upon this, there's three, uh, three emphases that, um, that Jesus gives. or three, He emphasizes three aspects of this pursuit of active reconciliation. There's three things that we kind of can, can pick up in here. The first one is the radical nature of it. That, this idea of I'm going all the way back to Galilee from Jerusalem just to reconcile with someone. So there's a radical nature to reconciliation. But also here we see it's fast. It's fast. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Reconciliation ought to be fast. We don't just sit back and wait for it to come about, but we actively pursue it fast. And the third thing is costly. When you settle with somebody... It costs you something. Usually you go to court because you think something's going to go in your favor, but if you're going to settle with them, you're like, no, I know that I'm going to pay, and so I'm going to settle now. I'm going to settle now. It's going to be costly. So be radical, be fast, and embrace the cost. Embrace the cost. Now, speaking some just general application for us as a church, when we think about not having this internal hate, when we think about actively pursuing and reconciling. Which, by the way, I'm just, again, I'm floored that Jesus' response to don't murder is you actively reconcile with someone. I, don't, I just, this week as I was dwelling on that, it just struck me every time. Okay, act, uh, some application. 
Three steps, three steps. First is a question for yourself. Do I have someone I need to settle with? Easy question. Do I have someone I need to settle with? To help you figure that out, there's some further questions you can ask. Am I annoyed by somebody? There's always someone for us that we're annoyed by. But I think a deeper question, and it's similar to the one I asked before, would someone be grieved to know that I thought that or I said that? Would they be grieved to know that? If the answer is yes, you may need to reconcile with someone. And here's another one, a simple question. Do I think my life would be better without this person? Ooh, my life would be easier. I just wish they were gone. So am I annoyed? Would they be grieved to know that I thought that? Or do I think life would be better without them? Ask yourself those two questions. Okay, that's the first step. Ask, see if you have someone you need to settle with. Secondly, dwell on how God has reconciled you to him. Okay? I can't move towards somebody well until I understand well how God has moved towards me. Because we don't move towards people out of, a, out of a begrudgingness or out of, well, I guess I ought to, but out of a gratitude of how God has moved towards us. So the second thing, dwell on how God has reconciled us. And then thirdly, seek reconciliation that's both radical, fast, and potentially costly. Those three things I mentioned earlier. Radical, fast, and potentially costly. Now, I want to give one word of warning before we close. Does this person need to know this? Okay? You may have sinned against someone or harbored something in your heart that they would be totally unaware of. Especially, gentlemen, if you've been lusting after someone, maybe you don't need to go and confess that to them. All right? That's not helpful. Use wisdom in what needs to be reconciled. But if you've been harboring, bitter, harboring bitterness towards someone and it's affected your interactions with them, maybe you need to go confess that and ask for forgiveness. So does that person need to know them? Will it edify them for you to actually reconcile? Do they know that there's a break in the relationship? All right, here's our response for today. Lord, help me to smile from the heart to the mouth to the hands. Let's have all three of those things together. And I picked smile. There's nothing fancy about that word. But as I just I think about the idea of murdering and hate, having a disposition towards people that wants their good, that wants to reconcile, just for some reason, smile popped into my head. Can we have a smile that comes from the heart, goes to the mouth, and then extends to the hands. So Lord, help me to smile from the heart to the mouth to my hands. The righteousness that those in the kingdom have starts in the heart. And it's consistent both internally and externally. The heart and the mouth match, but the hands match as well because it's active. All three are smiling together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your gift of grace to us. We thank you that you are whole, that you are perfect. Help us to walk with you. Help us to love one another and to seek reconciliation with one another. We confess that we have not done that wholly and fully. Help us to be full, fully righteous. May we truly have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees because our righteousness comes from you. Father, we thank you for all these things and we pray them in your name. Amen.